Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to the eighth, yeah, eighth season of Network Reorient. Time really does fly. Um, how was everyone's summer? I had an absolute doozy. I attended uh, the Islamophobia conference in Istanbul, um, which was absolutely brilliant. Lots of interesting presentations. And also, it was where the International Islamophobic Studies Research Association, or ISRA to its friends, was launched. And that was absolutely brilliant to be a part of. Um, it was also here at this conference uh, that I stumbled across uh, Ismail Patel talking with Hatem Bazian on Palestine, the Arab, Arabic-speaking Muslimistan, and the global civil society. Let's have a listen. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Network Reorient. Uh, I have uh, a wonderful guest from all the way from America, Professor Hatim Bazian, who's the founder uh, of Association of Muslims of Palestine and also the founder for Students for Justice for Palestine. He's also a professor at Zaytuna College. Uh, professor Haiza, uh, Hatim, welcome to Network Reorient. Well, thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ismail. Uh, today, we want to discuss the issue of Palestine, which is very close to your heart, and you have been campaigning, working, and writing, and studying the issue. Uh, so, a lot of people will be thinking, you know, this has been going for decades. So, where are we at the moment, Professor Hatim? Uh, well, Palestine, we're close to over a uh, hundred years uh, plus uh, since the struggle of Palestine with the arrival of the British colonization post-World War I, the Balfour Declaration, and uh, the unfolding of the dispossession of the Palestinians. Uh, but be it as it may be, I am very optimistic uh, overall on where Palestine is heading as it relates to the larger picture uh, in terms of struggling for freedom, for dignity, for justice, uh, for ending settler colonialism in Palestine. And I say this from a number of, in, from a number of indications. Uh, if we just evaluate the past two years, uh, since Israel has unleashed its assault on Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the Ramadan 2021, um, April, May, and even this Ramadan, uh, this past Ramadan in 2022, what resulted from this is rather than uh, Palestinians losing hope and feeling the might of the Israeli uh, force and power, which is mighty and powerful, relatively speaking, is that the response of the Palestinians was in essence saying that we no longer have fear of this might machine. And this reminds me of Wretched of the Earth Fanon, when uh, the colonizer stands up and in essence saying to the colonizer that I am here and I'm no longer being 
afraid, coward, dominated. Rather, I am ready to challenge on both the psychological level, but more importantly, on the applicable level, uh, the transformation that occurred is irreversible. And the second part of this statement is that, in particular in the 1948 area, Palestine 1948 area, which for those who think about this is where the Nakba took place and the Palestinians 750 to 780,000 were forcefully expelled. Uh, some 531 villages demolished and erased. Eight urban centers completely erased. And Israel from 1948 to, I would say, the uh, Ramadan 2021, they have thought that they have managed to erase the specificity and the ability of the Palestinians of 48 to stand up as uh, Palestinians and as people that are rooted in their identity and in their land and their readiness uh, to challenge the Israeli machine. You raise two very important points here and I think a lot of people would agree with you on this that uh, the Palestinians seem to have uh, nearly lost the fear of the occupier, the colonizer. And also there is an element, despite all the structures that have been created by the colonizers to differentiate the people of Gaza, West Bank and the 48, uh, they seem to have resisted that or it's coming to fall. But on the other hand, people who I might say that the violence that is being perpetrated against the Palestinians, it's going unchecked in the international arena. Uh, so much so that now we have even the Arab countries, uh, in particular the Gulf states, who are not only uh, showing a blind eye to it, but almost uh, collaborating. Uh, so on the one side, we have the Palestinians, yes. But on the other side, we have the international, so-called international community uh, with power and access to in international instruments who are allowing Israel to do whatever it likes. And then does that, could, could that not spiral out of hand and lead to another yeah. strength of the Nakba that we had and the ethnic cleansing and the genocide? Yeah. Uh, again, I still, with all these factors uh, combined, I'm still, uh, you know, guardly optimistic, but very sure. optimistic in this sense. Uh, the Palestinians have always faced the conversions of forces of the major powers. So it's very important to, to, at least for anyone who's listening, the Palestinians have faced the imposition of Zionism on Palestine by the great powers. And even though that the leadership among the great powers shifted from Great Britain to the United States, we need to be very clear that all of the major powers were committed to Zionism as a project and continued to facilitate it by means of uh, political power, uh, protection on the international scene, military support, and partnership across the board. 
So I think in the arraignment of the international community, if anything, I would say maybe there is some level of shift or impact, but compared to where it is, that is not surprising to me. The second element to this, I remind people that the 1936 Palestinian rebellion was made uh, was made to fail by the convergence of Arab collaboration at the time with the British to actually make it possible for the Palestinians to lose one of the most, uh, I would say, uh, courageous struggles at the time, facing the British machine as a superpower of its time and the Zionist irregular troops and armies, and the Arab allied themselves statewide at the state level with the British forces. So continuing to this present, the fact that Israel is leaning on the Arab states in the region, uh, opening through what's called the Abrahamic Accords, and uh, now they're talking about the Middle Eastern NATO, all this shows me that Israel is incapable of determining the outcome with the Palestinians on its own. And therefore, it's opting or at least trying to facilitate the engagement with the Arab world in order to try to limit the possibility and the impact of the Palestinian uh, mobilization, uh, continued resistance and perseverance under the most tremendous odds uh, that are arrayed against a struggle. Remind, Palestinians are not only facing Israel. They're facing Israel, supported by the United States, with the decisive support of the European Union, with the support of some of what we call Eastern European countries, Hungary, Poland, and others, with the support of the Arab states, with the Palestinian Authority that is actually imposed and is working with both the Israelis and also the Jordanians in order to limit the possibility of Palestinian resistance. With all of these odds arrayed against them, I think the Palestinians are still standing as the strongest component in the area of forces. Sure. So as this, uh, just looking from a, uh, the big picture lens, I'm still saying that the Palestinians at the end of the day are determining the outcome of the struggle rather than being the object of the Zionists as well as their allies in determining the outcome. Let me just take you a little bit on the wider sphere there. Sure. Um, up until very recently, uh, the Arab states' uh, collaboration either be with uh, Britain at the time of British Imperial as a superpower and America was done very harshly mm -hmm. behind the curtains, behind them. They wouldn't declare it. We, where there, well, we knew records now indicate that, of course, there was that collaboration and there's enough evidence. But them coming now in the f forefront and doing it openly, uh, is that a sign of weakness or strength? And if it is a weakness or strength either way, what do you think the repercussions are going to be politically for those leaders in the region? Uh, I think this is, from one dimension, it could be seen as a strength of Israel that is, has been able 
to impose and normalize its presence as a regional hegemon. And it's been able to engage some of the Arab countries uh, in a normalization uh, pattern and also convincing them that the great threat to their security is Iran. And in the sense, it's sold, if there's a selling to be made, that package that the Arab countries uh, that have normalized have adopted. But that also occurred as a result of the massive blow <clears throat> that has been directed at some of the key elements within the Arab body politic. In here, the destruction of Iraq should not be uh, uh, underestimated. The destruction of Syria, even though that we oppose the Syrian's regime and what it has undertaken, but part of the dynamic of Syria is to actually completely weaken the society, with the result is almost 8 million refugees, and the society is completely fragmented in such a way that next 30 years is not going to be able to reconstitute itself. The destruction of Libya, and here we're not talking about Libya in terms of Gaddafi as an individual, but Libya as a central society, Yemen, and then complete impoverishment of Egypt made it possible for the Gulf states to emerge as a critical mass of Arab politics, but without the critical mass of population nor strategic thinking. So in this sense, one can see this as an Israeli strength, but in essence, it's a mirage force and a mirage power that you could, you could say is propped up by financial means, returns from uh, the oil, uh, resources, but nothing beyond that. It is hoped for that the reorientation, strategic reorientation of the Arab world toward Iran will make the Arab world forget about Palestine and weaken the Palestinians. And in this sense, this laughable because the Palestinians, again, I think there was an image that I bought with a Palestinian elderly man sitting in the courtyard of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and drinking tea. And he had his foot up with his shoe pointing toward the Israeli soldier who was passing in there. In essence, saying that you could go to any part of the Arab world, you could go to any type of deal. We're here, we're not going anywhere. And our struggle is actually strengthened because Israel has no solution for the strategic boss it's created inside historical Palestine. The other dimension as that everything is out on public, I think we're living in a period where no secrets are left. Almost, you could say 99% of whatever is happening is already instantaneously transmitted. So the possibility of what you call uh, secret diplomacy that was the highlight of, let's say, during the uh, Israeli-Moroccan relations or Israeli-Jordanian relations or the back deals or with various countries, that is a thing of the past. And in this sense, Arab elites, who have also lost considerable legitimacy with their own population, uh, in essence, Israel is betting not on the wrong horse, it's not even a horse to begin with. It's basically an imported car constructed by someone else in the hope that this will actually prevent the Palestinians from gaining what is already clearly present and uh, almost obvious to everyone, that the Palestinians will gain freedom, that their freedom is within reach, and Israel has no solution 
to the problem that is there. You cannot, Israel cannot shoot itself out of it. Sure. And that's how I see the dynamics of being public in terms of the Arab world, because the critical sectors of Arab politics have been collapsed uh, over the past, let's say, uh, you know, 15, 15 years. But that's, again, it's a mirage. That's a very interesting analysis. And I just want you to expand on another dimension from there. Uh, you touched on the fact that, in a way, almost without using those words, that when there was a democratic representation in particularly, although there were a big uh, sort of big mass movement in Egypt and uh, Tunisia and, uh, and also Libya to a certain extent, when the people were to a certain extent allowed to express their political perception, not in a democratic sense of one person, one vote, uh, those regimes tried to at least have an ear to the public. Whereas dismantling that structure now uh, and creating more rift with Yemen in particular, thinking of Yemen, uh, the Gulf states come, coming to the fore uh, yeah. with their almost uh, monarchy approach to it without taking into account the public civil society. I wanted you to t consider two aspects. One is the civil society of the Arab region, uh, how they are reacting in which direction that will take. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe we can build on that later on and think of the civil society, global civil society, and how that is also uh, rising up or not, in your view, uh, yeah. towards the cause of Palestine. Uh, I think that the fact that Arab political elites that is connected to the government are all singing the same normalization tune should not get us to think that the Arab uh, civil society, the Arab mass, and the Arab population have abandoned or have completely let go of Palestine. I think Palestine cause is stronger today in the Arab street precisely because of the failure of the Arab elite and Arab government in the process. Uh, one thing that I actually uh, often I watch while I'm no longer playing soccer, I still enjoy uh, being an ex-player to look at how soccer in Arab world, especially in the stadiums, the constant presence of the Palestinian flag is symbolic representation at the grassroots level of the affinity and the identification with Palestine and the Palestinians. We saw that during the um, what they call the Arab uh, Cup, uh, where the most uh, uh, at least most prominent presence of the flag with the Palestinian flag, the most cheering that occurred, which occurred for the Palestinian team, uh, even in competitions that Palestine was not there, the Palestinian flag and the players of both teams on the ground were representing their affinity to that. This shows me that the process of normalization that is being undertaken with massive resources being spent on in the Arab world, which is predominantly a post-colonial structure, has not been successful in creating that uh, break with identification with Israel at the personal, communal, civil society level is taking place. Now, there is exception, again, in certain sectors, let's say maybe with the United Arab Emirates, but I also think that is a fictitious type of environment that is being constructed in order to give the impression that uh, 
the Arab world or that Israel has become a normal presence within the Arab region. So I'm very optimistic in this. Uh, the other part to this dynamic is that as the government have shifted to a closer relationship with Israel, Arab governments, that the struggle for Palestine is no longer contained in the ministries or the official arena of these Arab countries, but rather it moved out to the non-governmental sector and people are more ingenious, creative, and have been able to express their views. For example, I was completely taken back to see that there is an, a very active boycott movement that took place in Oman and in Bahrain as a result of the normalization that took place. It was, an, you know, it was unimaginable that this will actually be formulation. But as the government moved to sign on the Abraham Accord, that a very robust civil society emerged uh, that was always there. Again, uh, the, the Arab world, uh, you could say one of uh, aspects of their identity formation that gets to be renewed almost on an annual basis in Ramadan is this affinity and attachment to Palestine, to Jerusalem, to Al-Aqsa Mosque, that that civil society immediately under some duress expressed its relationship and its stand with the Palestinians. So as this, we see that this uh, public uh, embrace of Israel that is no longer under the table have resulted in likewise an above the table resistance that is emerging that is taking two shapes. One is actually think thinking and directing its attention to the government's that are there that have failed their policies and at the same time resulting in those relationship with uh, and stronger relationship and assertion with the Palestinians. Now, just to expand that uh, on the civil society movement uh, on the wider, especially European and American arena. Uh, I mean, as we know, historically, uh, especially in reference to South Africa, when the governments of Europe and America were supporting the apartheid system, it was the civil society that mm. acted. But I, I, I can't recall the instruments of powers in Europe and America trying to suppress the civil society against supporting South Africa as much as what appears to be happening now. Is that, again, a weakness or is there new tools, do you think, the civil society in Europe and America should adopt to try and overcome that and, and continue with their uh, efforts? Uh, I think in uh, in the United States in particular, uh, the, the anti-apartheid movement faced the repression of the state. Uh, remember the large number of arrests uh, that uh, we had as students who were organizing against South Africa apartheid, whether it's in Berkeley or San Francisco State. So... And even the U.S. government at the time during Reagan uh, put together a program called Reconstructive Engagement. Uh, and the South African government was engaged almost in an identical way that Israel is engaged today with trying to take delegations, inviting student leaders, politicians to come and see South Africa. They also tried to send South African blacks who were affiliated with uh, the apartheid regime, especially Chief Botelezi and some of his underlings, uh, and I remember they bringing them to speaking tours all over. 
some of the corporate uh, interests were actually sending that they're actually hiring blacks in South Africa and therefore the boycott will hurt blacks. In, even Coca-Cola was one of the companies that began to shift its uh, headquarter from uh, at one point in one part of South Africa to a black uh, homeland to say that we are in a black homeland so don't boycott us. So the dynamics in terms of repression was the same. What is unique in this is that in the United States and possibly also in the other parts of Europe is that you have a strong presence of a pro-Israel Zionist movement that in South Africa did not have that same population, meaning in here, whether it's the Board of Debris or some other parts that uh, advocate in a very strong way uh, to try to uh, pass legislation to criminalize the advocacy for Palestine. I do consider this as a strategic blunder on their part. And my reason is that uh, their attempt to silence advocacy have shifted the debate from a debate and a discussion about pro-Israel and pro-Palestinians to a fundamental issue about what is the nature of democracy, what is the nature of free speech, what is the nature of organizing, and so on. And I said almost uh, eight years or nine years ago, I don't remember, that this will actually bring more forces out to resist the imposition of silencing the debate. Because Israel lost the debate, because they no longer are able to argue settler colonialism, uh, they are no longer able to stand in front of any let alone, you know, we're not talking about the Congress and they cannot stand in any type of setting with a straight face to say that Israel represents a liberal democracy. Not only that, but every respectable human rights organization have already said is on the record with a substantial report that Israel is an apartheid state. We're talking about a Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, Beth Salem, uh, the United Nations Human Rights Committee. So every reputable human rights organization has already put that apartheid tag on the state. Now, you could still lobby for Israel's supporters, a, a congressional leader or a, a parliamentary members, and you could actually put a law to say that boycotting Israel is illegal. But at the end of the day, that is not a sign of strength. That's a sign of weakness because you no longer are able to argue Israel on its own merits. And you end up trying to close. Now, does that impact at the short term? I would say yes, it impacts. But every legal challenge that we took to court, we have won. We have won challenges in Texas. We have won challenges in the uh, state of Arizona, in the uh, state of Maryland. And every uh, challenge is going to be... Uh, uh, at least mounted, and in the long run, it's a failed strategy because it's using stealth to actually close the debate and the possibility of challenging the argument, which is, is Israel an apartheid state? Is Israel a settler colonial state that is dispossessing the Palestinians? And in this sense, as people turn on the TV during this past uh, uh, May, April, May, and also the year before, that what is visually coming in front of their faces and in front of their eyes is a state that is only able to shoot and tear gas people who are peacefully praying.
Not only Palestinians in Al-Aqsa Mosque, but also Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem, Palestinian Christians in the Church of the Nativity, and the the, sub, uh, the Church of the Supplic, Holy Supplica. They are seeing in their own eyes what is taking place, and Israel is actually trying to impose limitation on their ability to free think and act. And as such, it's a failed strategy. Let me pick on one aspect which is quite sensitive, uh, and I think very little work has been done on this, but it'd be very interesting to hear your view. And that is regarding uh, the Israeli society itself. You mentioned Beit Salem there. Mm -hmm. That is one of the Israeli organizations. Most of the people there are Jewish, uh, uh, I think, uh, and they have classified Israel as an apartheid state. How much should we concentrate in trying to uh, work with or at least educate and try and empower the Jewish, Israeli Jewish society, uh, community, and, and Jews as well, outside of Israel yeah. uh, to make them see uh, what Israel is doing and, and hopefully try and get them to uh, stimulate their humanitarian aspect and what will be better for the, for the region and the people, yeah. both Palestinians and Israelis. Maybe we could begin by looking outside to the United States first. If we look at an age uh, spectrum, the older Jewish uh, population is still committed to Zionism and committed to Israel. The younger generation uh, is decisively have shifted away from Zionism and shifted away from Israel as the main hub and the construct of their identity. And what we're seeing today is that uh, pro-Israel organization and also Israel operative in the United States are attempting to plug the dam within the Jewish community in the United States with first and first foremost trying to keep the segment of the young population uh, within the rank and file and support of Israel. And I say that this is also a losing battle for them because this young Jewish population that we are uh, seeing in the United States have come of age during the uh, Ferguson protest, uh, during the George Floyd protest, uh, during the Baltimore protest, and a high consciousness to the subaltern, the high consciousness to the racialization, and expressing solidarity with the Black Lives Matters, as well as with the uh, uh, increasing anti-Latino at the borders and anti-Asian uh, hate and so on. So they had to confront at a, both at a personal level and at organizational level. How can I be in anti-racist relative to uh, Black Lives Matter, Latino, and so on, while continue to affirm a relationship of a state that actually practices ethnic cleansing and also expresses supremacy of one ethno-religious group over the other and witnessing the uh, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, building settlements, and dispossession of the Palestinians. So I would say that we are seeing a massive shift in the younger Jewish population and in certain areas, a complete partnership with the Palestinians. For example, 
again, uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine, uh, our relationship with Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, it's a very important uh, relationship. It's a relationship of partnership in various uh, arenas, partnership in advocacy, partnership in mobilization, and the Jew Jewish Voice for Peace. It started not being anti-Zionist. It started as a on the liberal side, but have moved, and now they have adopted an anti-Zionist platform. That's an important development uh, in the United States. Uh, I think you could say similar pattern. I don't have the quantification in the UK, but I think the younger population, as a result of a number of elements, including, I would say, even going a little bit earlier to the anti-war effort, anti-Iraq war effort, and moving into the uh, anti-racism and so on, that resulted in a different consciousness configuration, and also that people have contacted each other in real struggle situation that is irreversible, but also brings uh, the challenge to Israel of how to maintain that uh, uh, wall of uh, support for Israel at a time where it's no longer present. So I'm very optimistic. Now, when we go to inside Israel, that's where some of the major challenge. Uh, indication relative to Israel political uh, alignment, it, it actually shifted more and more to the right. Uh, increasingly, the Israeli society is more and more tending toward fascism, open fascism toward the Palestinians. Uh, and uh, the sector of what we call left or political left or progressive is a very small, thin layer. Uh, but that does not mean it's, that we should not engage it. We should be, and we are engaging some of uh, the political left inside uh, Israel that's anti-Zionist. And I think those increasing voices are going to emerge because the contradictions are there, racial contradictions are there, the differences, let's say, between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, the discriminations toward the Yemeni and the uh, Ethiopian Jews. Uh, and the various uh, alignment inside Israel society are only uh, at least points toward a possibility of a fissure that will take place uh, in this sense. Is it substantial? No, but it is, it is there and we need to be accounting the level and the scope of it. Thank you for that. Just before I let you go, one more question. Uh, we have talked about sort of the Palestinian society itself and the difficulties this face vis-a-vis uh, internal and how they have uh, risen up and lost their fear and uh, the role of the neighboring Arab states uh, and then extended it outwards and brought it to the Jewish-Israeli community itself, uh, including the external Jewish community. Uh, one of the things I would like to ask you is about Masjid al-Aqsa. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a very strange conversation with Bishop Manuel of Jerusalem. Mm. He rang me once uh, very re about a year ago to say that, you know, whenever you talk about Al-Aqsa, uh, consider it as a symbol of resistance for Palestinians and not necessarily just uh, as a symbol for Muslims. Using that, uh, his sort of take on it, how do you see the bringing together of the Palestinian society itself, which is, you know, we tend to forget that it's heterogeneous. We've got Christians, Muslims, mm -hmm. and all different types of people within the Palestinian society. How do we sort of try and mobilize that 
uh, how are they mobilizing internally do you think themselves and externally how we should be able to sort of promote that yeah. i think palestinian civil society contrary to uh, maybe perceptions from outside is rather unified uh whether it's on even ideological differences uh is still at the struggle to gain freedom or unified setting aside the palestinian authority just said that mm-hmm. but at the at the level of the civil society they are uh unified palestinian uh muslims palestinian christians are unified uh their uh, co-participation both in defending al-aqsa mosque and in defending the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the uh, Church of the Nativity, and the expression that all these are important symbolic nods of resistance that represents Palestinian identity from all the way historically, all the way to the contemporary period. And what we need is to understand of how to uh, create solidarities or not how to create the solidarity, how to project that solidarity on the ground and amplify it in our work transnationally. I think what we often fail to do, and again, myself might sometimes might be included, is that in our focus on the specificity, for example, in the mobilization, we tend not to look at the various ways that the Palestinians are connected in resisting the attempted fragmentation that Israel tries to impose on the Palestinians with some internal collaborators. The fact that the Palestinians have collaborators with Israel and Zionism should not be a surprise to us. It is part of the contradiction of colonization that you will always have collaborating class within a colonized society that will collaborate and act to pursue its own individualized narrow interests at the expense of the large struggle. How South Africa had it, Vietnam had it, Korea, and you name it. So we should not pre project that aspect of the weakness in Palestine and to think it is the national weakness across the board. Uh, and this is where Al-Aqsa Mosque plays an important role because of its uniqueness, because it's at, it's always been the hub of Palestinian identity, at least relative to the arrival of uh, Islam in uh, the region. And it is the hub where all national projects, as well as all of the uh, uh, crystallizations of modes of resistance occurs in Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that also has a symbolic effect on transnationality. Uh, You know, it's not surprising that during Ramadan, you actually turn and watch and listen to the recitation of the Quran that is taking place. And usually, in addition to what is occurring, it's that people are making the linkage between what is occurring to the Palestinians, seeing in front of them the assault, uh, on Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Palestinians occurring at the most holiest period or sacred period for the Palestinians as well as Muslims across the world. And I think the relationship between the Christians and the Muslims in this sense is has been strengthened during this period rather than being weakened. Uh, and I think uh, if if my uh, analysis or my reading of it, the Christian Palestinian community has been far more assertive in defending Palestine with the Kairos Palestinas uh, platform that they put out or the 
document, then I would say their counterpart Muslims, both whether it's internal or external. I think in this, one has to to give credit to Father Atiq in Palestine, Mithi Rahib and the others, because I think their work has been monumental and they have impacted the discourse among Western Christian churches as it relates to the Palestinian struggle. So when we, re, when we see the Presbyterian Church of the United States passing uh, the resolution to declare Israel as an apartheid state by two-third majority, and just two years ago it failed. It actually failed to be on, 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 the, uh, on the floor and to see that it's actually passed, one has to credit our Palestinian Christian uh, organizers and activists uh, and their Kairos Palestina's call, and also some of us that were working with some of the Christian uh, coalitions in that way. Uh, colonialism always wants to divide people that are under colonization. It divides them in, in terms of religious identity, divide them into sectarian identity, divide them into ethnic tribal identity, divide them into uh, various what you call poor, rich, and so on, and tries to instrumentalize these division in order to push forth this colonial project. Part of our resistance is to understand the long history and legacy of resistance and highlight those moments of resistance, moments of solidarity, moments of sacrifice that have been articulated both Muslim, Jew, Muslim Christian, as well as progressive uh, Jews and Palestinian Jews who stood in the face of colonization. In remembering the historical legacies of struggle of the past, we renew the capacity for future horizons for such moments. And I think those are... When, uh, when we see those moments, I think these are the way that we captivate. I add to it is that if people watch the, uh, the uh, outcome or the response to the assassination of our dear uh, sister Shireen Abu Aqleh, right? There was a, an idiotic debate that took place among certain segments of the Muslims, whether you could say Rahma on uh, Shireen. Setting that aside, Palestinians of all walks of life, Muslim, Christians, and otherwise, religious and otherwise, uh, affluent or poor, were all rallied and understood that Shireen is a symbol and a daughter of Palestine that was assassinated, and she was lifted out, prayed on by all Palestinians that carried her coffin. And those, some of those who carried her coffin were Muslim, just like those who carried her coffin were Christians. And you could see in the picture there were Christians and Muslims that were actually gathered around her uh, coffin trying to honor her. Those are moments where it transcends the capacities of limitation and the borders that are constructed by colonization. So in Shireen's Abu Aqli's assassination, we could see that manifested in front of our eyes. And the symbolic picture we saw were the attempt to drop her coffin uh, and the procession uh, to the ground, the Palestinians prevented it. And in that, it's a moment of resistance that if Fanan was alive, he would recognize that even though that Shireen Abu Aqli was dead in the coffin, Palestine was alive that lifted her up so she might be in the grave that Palestine is actually still alive and resisting no matter what power, tools, uh, machine guns that are arrayed, uh, the symbol is far more powerful than the tool that is attempted to kill the symbol. Professor Hatim, I wish I had more time, uh, but we have to end it as time has come to 
uh, cut our conversation sure. short. Uh, but what I would recommend to our listeners is please follow Professor Hatim Berzian's work, uh, either through his website or through social media. And there'll be a lot to capture and learn as we the story unfolds. So, Professor Hatim, thank you very much. Jazakallah khan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you, Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes, and please leave a like and a rating.